Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Oline Eaton. The birth control activist Margaret Sanger is among the most colorful and controversial figures of the 20th century. Her views on reproductive rights are often criticized by conservatives, and due to her socialist leanings and purported belief in eugenics, the liberals are equally reluctant to claim her. But biographers are terribly brave souls. In her new book, the renowned feminist historian Jean H. Baker provides a serious, nuanced, and fascinating portrayal of the activist. Today I'm going to be speaking with her about the book, Margaret Sanger, A Life of Passion. Hi, Dr. Baker. Thank you so much for joining us for New Books and Biography today. I wonder if you could kick things off by telling us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a native Marylander, and I live in Baltimore, and have lived in Baltimore all of my life. I'm married and have four children, grandchildren. I've studied mostly in Maryland, and I have a PhD from Johns Hopkins, and I've written other books, increasingly in recent years focused on women. But when I began, I was interested in Maryland and its allegiance during the Civil War, in part because Maryland's a divided state, and I discovered while I was in graduate school that my great-great-great-grandparents were one followed up for the Union and one for the Confederacy. But in time, and I think this is partly because I teach at a liberal arts college and am not to some extent constrained by the specialties of graduate students, in time, in my research, I've been able to move into other fields uh, from Maryland to American politics during the 19th century, and then to books on women's suffrage. And finally, this most recent book on Margaret Sanger, the, both, the great birth control pioneer. And I've, It's a wonderful book. The, it's entitled Margaret Sanger, A Life of Passion. Uh, what drew you to Margaret Sanger in particular? I know she's kind of a difficult figure. What was the allure there? Yeah, she certainly is controversial. Um, I like controversial women to write about. I have written a biography of Mary Todd Lincoln. Uh, I think mostly there were there probably are two reasons why I focused on Margaret Sanger, and the first is it seemed a natural progression from a book that I did uh, entitled Sisters on the American Suffragists, and after the suffrage amendment was ratified in 1920, it seemed that the women's movement just disappeared. Alice Paul, the very courageous writer uh, for uh, women's suffrage who began all of the picketing of Woodrow Wilson, she worked on the National, uh, in the women, National Women's Party on the Equal Rights Amendment, but it got nowhere. But there was one 
performed, and I think it was the most successful one during this period, and that, that was Margaret Sanger and her effort to make birth control legal and accessible and cheap. So I began very tentatively at first to see what I could find out about uh, Sanger. And then uh, the second reason why I wrote this biography emerged, and that was that Sanger is really vilified unfairly today. She's used as this symbol of Nazism and eugenicism, Herman Cain, for example, referred to her, yes, that Herman Cain, uh, several weeks ago and said that she was a racist who had established birth control clinics to prevent black babies from being born. He called it planned genocide. And this is just crazy. Um, Sanger was ahead of her time to some degree about uh, the need for blacks as well as whites to have a birth control, and she certainly wasn't interested in planned genocide. So this effort by those who are interested in defunding Planned Parenthood became very absorbing to me, and I saw Sanger as, as really being historically misused by a certain part of the population, and that really encouraged me to get through the 170 reels of microfilm that represent the Sanger archive. So it's for these two reasons that I began this biography. Since Sanger frequently explained her involvement in birth control by pointing back to her parents and her childhood, can you talk a bit about her early years? Yes, and it, it, it's interesting. Sanger is not like most of the other reform women. They came from well-educated households, and they were mostly middle class. So this was Cady Stanton's father was a judge. Lucy Stone's father was able to send her brothers to Bowdoin College. But Sanger comes from a very deprived background. She's the sixth of 11 children in a household in Corning, New York. It has a, I don't know whether you call it a mountain or a very, very big hill, but it rises abruptly from the Chemung River, and all the rich people lived at the top, and it was sort of gradated. The Higginses, and she was born Margaret Higgins, lived at the bottom. And her father was an iconoclast in some ways. He uh, was a sculptor of gravestones. Uh, he made these gorgeous stone roses to decorate the graves of the dead children in Corning. But he was constantly at war with the Catholic fathers who pretty much ruled Corning. And so Margaret Sanger grew up in this household with many, many, many children, with a mother who suffered from tuberculosis, and this father who was pretty much of an outsider in town. Sanger once wrote that her mother died at 48, 
meeting William Sanger when she got married? what I would call 
uh, contested choices, different choices that most women wouldn't uh, have made, uh, they moved back into New York and soon enough Sanger is working for the Socialist Party, which her, her uh, husband is a member of, and she's involved with these left-wing circles in New York, including the famous uh, uh, IWW Wobbly Union leader Bill Haywood. Uh, she goes to uh, Lawrence when there's a strike, and she also goes to Patterson, New Jersey. She's incorporated into this circle that in, who introduced her to all kinds of different ideas. I was intrigued because early on you characterized Sanger as, quote, an adroit fabulist, which is a really important character trait to identify in your subject. So how did this tendency of Sanger's affect the way that you approached her? Yeah, um, it's, it is a problem because she makes things up and exaggerates. The most famous and probably unimportant, unless you're a psychologist, example of this is that uh, she begins taking her younger sister's age. And so she takes five years off of uh, her, her birth year. So she says born in 1883 rather than 1879, and this is just absolutely not true. As a biographer, one of the problems is that for her early life, we're most dependent on what she tells us in these two books. One, My Fight for Birth Control. They're both very autobiographical, and the other is um, the autobiography of Margaret Sanger. So as a biographer, uh, you have this woman who often makes up, exaggerates, etc., and yet the record that you have is mostly her discussion and presentation of uh, her life. And so I think that you ha have to take into consideration what this tells you about Sanger, uh, the woman, and the pioneer in the birth control movement. To me, what this suggests is that uh, she was able to deal with an unpleasant reality. And it's not a question of denial so much as to be optimistic. I think all reformers, especially one in this terribly difficult uh, area of birth control, which most people won't pay any attention to, they think it's salacious, etc., uh, she had to be a fabulist about some aspects of her life, and but she never was that way with the demands of the organizational movement. She was all, always realistic about uh, uh, what was going on in the American birth control movement. She was less uh, optimistic. Uh, less realistic and more of a fabulous in her personal life. And, of course, as um, we we'll probably get into, she, her personal life involved many, many love affairs with a different men. But I think, for example, that's one reason why she took the, these, um, the years off of her life. 
Uh, she wanted to be young and vigorous. She said uh, once that she never looked backwards, she only looked forward. And because she believed that way, the optimism helped the birth control movement. You can't devote your whole life to a cause like birth control unless you're a visionary and looking forward. On the other hand, she wanted to have fun, and she certainly did, with these many, many men who adored her. And one of the interesting things about Sanger's personal life is that she would have affairs with men, and unlike most women, including uh, her sometime uh, adversary and rival, Emma Goldman, um, the men continued to love Margaret Sanger even when the sexual intimacies uh, were over. Can you tell us how she actually got in directly involved in the birth control movement? Obviously, it didn't; it wasn't called that at the time. But how did she begin to become active in that? Mm-hmm. Um, Sanger, by the way, named birth control so that she is not only present at the beginning, but she names it. There were all these, um, I, I would say, euphemisms for birth control, voluntary parenthood, uh, venereal prophylaxis, what the hell is that? Uh, But she came down uh, with this notion that it should be called birth control one evening. The really important event that occurred in 1912 was uh, the epiphany, or at least this is what she describes as the epiphany for her. She uh, got a telephone call from a physician to come down to the Lower East Side Sadie Sachs, a uh, woman, a young woman with three children, had gone to an abortionist. And remember, abortion is illegal and therefore dangerous. It occurs in back alleys. And Sadie Sachs was hemorrhaging. Uh, so Sanger grabbed the little black bag, the emblem of nurses, and hastened to the apartment. And when the bleeding was stopped, Sanger... Uh, Uh, heard Sadie Sachs say, what can I do to prevent another, having another child? And the physician, in that indifferent way of physicians who oppose birth control, said, tell Jake to sleep on the roof. And a couple months later, uh, Sayo was again called back to the Sachs uh, apartment and a raging infection in her vagina and she was dead uh, very soon and this was uh, for Sanger the event of the road to Damascus in which she saw the future she writes uh, very poignantly in her autobiography that when she walked came into her own apartment, she looked over the city and saw it sleeping and saw in her mind all these little babies that were born uh, who couldn't be taken care of, who were cold, and the coffins, the coffins, the coffins, she writes. And in that context of that event, which may have been a compilation of several 
was the beginning of her crusade for birth control. And from 1912, really up to the 1960s, when physically she was unable to do much, this is the ruling passion of her life. Do you think it's important to point out that Sanger herself did lose a child? She had a, a young daughter who died quite young, correct? Yes. Um, uh, Sanger was an unusual mother. She left, she was um, indicted under the famous Comstock Law uh, for some of the things she had written in her first magazine or pamphlet or uh, I'm not exactly what you call it. It was the woman rebel that she began it and soon enough the uh, post office had confiscated some of the issues and soon enough after that uh, Sanger was indicted for the violation of the Comstock law. She decided to leave the children and uh, she left and went to England and when she returned, a month later, this third child, Peggy, age five, suffered, was suffering from pneumonia and, and died in November of 1915. Her granddaughters, uh, Sanger's granddaughters, had told me that, who knew her well in her later years, said that uh, this was the greatest tragedy that Sanger ever, ever uh, endured. And as a result, Sanger became, to some extent, what I would call a spiritualist. She certainly was engaged uh, with mediums. She had seances. She became a Rosicrucian. She was fascinated with the possibility of recalling spirits. And she was devastated perhaps a little bit from guilt, but because she had left Peggy, her, the daughter that died, and had been in England uh, for a year before this. You hit upon the Comstock Laws, which pay, play a huge part in any discussion of early contraceptive history. Can you give us a quick overview of what those were exactly and how they related to Sanger and what she was trying to do? Because she really was trying to dismantle them, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Comstock Law was passed in 1873, and it takes the name of Anthony Comstock, this mustachioed a social purist who, as H.L. Mencken once said, I think worried that someone somewhere was having a good time. Comstock uh, was had grown up in in, um, in Connecticut. He'd been in the Civil War, and he came to New York and was horrified by what he saw in New York in terms of pornography, etc. So he began this crusade to have a nas national legislation passed. And in 1873, he went to Congress. He took with him uh, this collection of dildos and uh, pornographic pictures, and he set it up, one can't can imagine trying to do this today, in uh, the halls of Congress. Now, this is uh, a Congress that was seen to adjourn in March 
so um, the issue of getting rid of the Comstock Law was one which Margaret Sanger confronted from the time she began the movement in Contraceptives during this time. What were available? What was available to people given uh, to use? Um, contraceptives have, have been around uh, forever. Mm-hmm. In Egypt, in 1600 BC, there are papyri uh, that show that crocodile dung uh, was used as a spermicide. Women would use it and and rub it on little. Uh, gauze or whatever, and then insert it in their vaginas. So for women, uh, there were spermicides of various kinds. Not many women had access to crocodile dung, uh, but other kinds of often folklore uh, remedies that would be used. And there were douches. The main research area for many, many years was to try to find some sort of acidic spermicide that uh, could be used. And Sanger, who was very alert to new uh, research, she she wor- worked on this herself until she decided that uh, hormones were the most exciting and important way to go. But Besides this, of course, uh, there were condoms, and condoms remained uh, one of the most effective ways to prevent conception. The problem for Sanger was that she wanted to have a contraception that women controlled, and so she continued to work for with the douches, the spermicides, uh, and... It was not until the 1930s that uh, we begin to see the possibility of a hormonal anovulant that will be successful. But uh, I think the major point here is that women have always tried to do something to control their fertility. And most of these uh, contraceptives were not very effective, and this was a source of great frustration for for Sanger. What was the response to her early work? I know she had a series of pamphlets called What Every Girl Should Know, so she was really trying to inform people and give them as much information as she could, but it met with a lot of resistance legally, obviously. What was the response to her in the community? Well, in her early community, uh, she existed in this Greenwich village progressive um, group along with the socialist community. I think uh, one of the the real important stages in her life is when she begins writing for the New York Call, which is a socialist, I can't remember whether it's a daily or a weekly, I guess it's a weekly. And uh, she was uh, convinced that uh, no one knew anything about sex, which was true, and she wanted to be able to inform her children. The first uh, writing that she did in the, in the New York call, call 
uh, had to do with whatever every girl should know and what every boy should know and when these were um, and what every mother should know when these were published in the call uh, they were confiscated and there's a wonderful story about the call then printed what every girl should know and then had in large block letters nothing and this was the way that uh, Margaret Sanger thought that most of the conventional world thought about sex and she was right about that what had bothered the censors uh, was the reference to venereal diseases which uh, today we would hardly um, we would just be astonished that that would be the case that discussion or mention of syphilis or gonorrhea uh, would lead to censorship but nonetheless this is the way it was in uh, New York in the night from 1910 to about 1925 the other important writing that uh, Sanger did during this early period is the pamphlet family limitation and here uh, she was very graphic in the descriptions and the illustrations that took uh, that she used and this uh, family limitation went into six or seven editions it was an astonishingly astonishingly uh, successful and popular kind of writing and she was um, at this stage of her life she was very interested in the possibilities of educating women so that they would know more about their bodies uh, one of the things I remember about family limitation is uh, it tells uh, women to have a calendar and write down when their menstrual periods came uh, this again for us probably would not be a startling news but for uh, Sanger and the women who lived at, in her time uh, it it was new information and she began getting all these letters from women uh, uh, dear, dear birth control some of them would read uh, please send me information about my body and how I could not have, have babies. One of the interesting things that comes across in your portrait of her is that she does kind of emerge as a bohemian. I've always seen her as this fierce advocate and kind of a nurse, a nurse and a, a harsh, somewhat medical figure. But she really seems like a, a lively, animated character in a bohemian sense. Oh yes, and I think this is what the uh, the men enjoyed about her. I, she loved dancing. One of the stories about uh, Greenwich Village is that she went. Uh, Mabel Dodge later married to Tony Luhan, was a rich woman who had a what I would call a salon on uh, Fifth Avenue, and everyone would go there. Uh, for these wonderful parties and there would be discussions and about serious topics about philosophers like Nietzsche etc. Uh, Mabel uh, Dodge once wrote in her autobiography uh, that Sanger was the first person she'd ever met who talked about sex 
and made it a human experience, a universal experience that women could enjoy. And uh, Mabel Dodge Lewin herself was uh, certainly a bohemian, as, as you say, but she was astonished at how open Sanger was about sex and sexuality. I, I don't know exactly where this would come from. I think two sources. One, uh, when she grew up in Corning, there would be little that she did not know in this tiny little house with all uh, these children about childbirth and her, her mother and father's uh, sex life. And the other thing is that she later uh, thanked Bill Sanger for his help in this. I think uh, Bill and uh, Margaret Sanger had a very enlightened sex life. And so from this came uh, the idea that women should have autonomy over their own bodies and instead of hating sex, uh, they should begin to enjoy it. And this was very much uh, accepted, of course, by all these bohemians in Greenwich Village. While we're here, would you like to discuss the lovers a little bit? I couldn't hear. While we're here, would you like to discuss the lovers a little bit? Some other, other what? Um, Other lovers? Yes. Oh, um, Sanger was never a beautiful woman, but she was, uh, I guess we would say she had sex appeal. Uh, She had the Higgins nose, but she had this luxurious, at first reddish hair that turned darker as she uh, grew older, but there there was something about her persona, and this attracted a multitude of men. She also, in the Greenwich Village, society that that she had adopted, uh, there were many what we might call free lovers. Uh, There were couples who uh, had affairs outside of marriage, and I think this influenced Sanger. She had her first affair uh, in maybe 1912, 1913, and she asked her uh, husband, Bill Sanger, he having earlier been the radical, whether the, the he could adopt an, what we might call an open marriage. And uh, he then turned very, very conservative and said, no, absolutely not. I love you. You were a world lover. And indeed she was. She uh, had affairs with, I think, especially of, of interest, of Englishmen, the famous sexologist Havelock Ellis, who had a tremendous influence on Margaret Sanger, and even H.G. Wells, uh, some uh, uh, Englishmen whose names uh, we have forgotten. And in the United States, she had long-term affairs with a number of men. She enjoyed this this is why the subtitle of this book is a, a, a Passionate Life. She she enjoyed sex. It was something that uh, she intended to have and to explain to other women uh, its importance in their lives. Um, at the end of her life, 
she had an affair with uh, two, two men. Uh, one was an artist that's from uh, Pennsylvania State University, uh, and the other was a, a an architect who uh, once wrote her that uh, he had learned to fly an airplane because he wanted to be able to come and see her more often. But the problem with having a, a love affair with Margaret Sanger is that always uh, it, it was secondary to what she was doing uh, for birth control, and this irritated some of these men. Others, uh, not so much. Hudson Pittman, who was one of the, the artists who was one of her lovers at the end of uh, her life, once told her that she, he didn't want to drive across the country with her uh, because uh, his reputation might be sullied. And Sanger's reaction to this was just fury. Uh, she had been driving across the country with many, many uh, men, and uh, she was astonished that this man would even worry about that. The interesting thing about her time period, of course, is that she never, never wanted anybody to know about the affairs, um, but no one picked up on this. This was never used by her opponents against uh, birth control. Uh, instead, uh, her personal life was left, for the most part, out of things, uh, even though in 1920 she's divorced from uh, Bill Sanger. In 1922, she marries her second husband with the stipulation uh, that they're going to lead separate sexual lives. Uh, he, of course, is just overwhelmed with passion for Margaret Sanger and is 20 years older also. Uh, but she, on the other hand, led an independent sexual life even after her marriage to J. Noah Slee. In the early 1920s, Sanger published two books on eugenics, which are often seen as sort of the darker side of the birth control movement. Can you discuss Sanger's views on eugenics and also put them in historical context for us? Um, I, I, I don't think I'd characterize both books as on, just on eugenics. Uh, the new race and the pivot of civilization are really, to me, feminist explanations of what birth control will do. Now, in terms of general eugenicism, this is the, the thing that has made Sanger so controversial during the ages and, 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 and still to some extent contaminates her reputation. I, I want to say a couple of things about that. The first is, and this is by no means to absolve her, of her eugenicism. But the first thing is that the entire United States was awash with eugenicism during this period. There were very few Americans who were not eugenicists. You would go to a country fair and play a game, and the game would be that the light would light up when a fit child, fit, so to speak, uh, in quotation marks, was born. And this, of course, took much, much longer than the lights that lit up when unfit children uh, were born. American presidents from 
Teddy Roosevelt, through to William Howard Taft, through to Woodrow Wilson, uh, supported the idea of using biology to have better Americans. And that's what eugenics means. You uh, meaning good and genes, uh, good genes. So I think that you've got to put Margaret Sanger, first of all, in the context of an America where the Supreme Court in 1927, in a landmark case, Buck v. Bell, uh, rules, and these are the words of Oliver Wendell Holmes, that three generations of imbeciles are enough, and so, therefore, it's okay to sterilize, involuntarily, carry a buck. Now, Sanger goes along with eugenics at first, I believe, uh, to gain support and respectability to the birth control movement. These are very famous scientists who are eugenicists. Uh, they include Henry Goddard, Paul Popineau, Raymond Pearl, uh, almost any scientist that you could name supports the idea of uh, eugenicism. So she encourages these men to support uh, birth control. But the second thing I would say, as she became more and more uh, associated with eugenics, she's a, not a very good one. First of all, Sanger is not a believer in the basic credo, more children from the fit, that is the good pe people who have good genes, and fewer from the unfit. She never goes along uh, with that particular uh, uh, philosophy. Moreover, she's an environmentalist. Uh, Sanger had had been around the Lower East Side and Corning too long to not believe that if you changed the external conditions that uh, uh, human beings, Americans, lived in, uh, that their uh, their lives and also their children would be better. She is what I would call a feminist eugenicist. She believed that if she could just get birth control and get women to use birth control, they would space their babies, and that's a eugenics uh, proposition. Uh, the mothers would take better care of them. The families would have more money. And so birth control became her answer to this idea of, of biology creating better humans. Now, it is true that at some, in the, by the 1930s, uh, she supports involuntary sterilization, never for a group of people, but for those who are mentally ill. But she does not believe in surgical castration, which uh, would, she thinks, uh, and, and in fact would, uh, eliminate their sexual urges. Uh, she simply believes in uh, vasectomies or uh, 
palpidectomies, tying the tubes of women. So while Sanger is a eugenicist, uh, she certainly is a different kind of eugenicism, but most particularly, uh, she needs to be put in the context of a society in which uh, uh, all opinion makers support various forms of eugenicism. I think it's also important to establish this is a context where birth control was still not really seen as a as a medical issue, correct? That the American Medical, medical Association had yeah. not really come out yeah. to support it? Um, the, the, the doctors were, were um, less enthusiastic about birth control, I think for a couple of reasons. Um, I, I think that if had Sanger been able to get their support, uh, things would have moved much more quickly. Uh, doctors represented uh, higher socioeconomic groups, conservatives, and so uh, they did not support birth control. They thought, many of them thought that Sanger was just a hysterical propagandist. And others, Howard Kelly is the example here, actually, and he's a gynecologist, a very famous gynecologist of, the, of this period, uh, he believes that if you use birth control, uh, it caused cancer. I'm not sure which uh, forms of birth control he was referring to, but there was this general sense by uh, physicians that they didn't want to have anything to do with it. Now, uh, if, if, if you want to be cynical, you could certainly say that for some of these doctors, uh, birth control violated uh, their... Uh, uh, efforts to establish a profession. Many of them were obstetricians. And, uh, obstetrics was a, a fairly new discipline, and uh, so you needed work. So you certainly didn't want to have support this idea of controlling fertility. You wanted to have as many babies born as possible. It was not then until 1937 uh, that the American Medical Association came out and supported, passed a resolution supporting birth control, and did so only after uh, the Supreme Court decision, the United States versus one pessary, which essentially struck down uh, the Comstock law. There, there were some exceptions to this, uh, a few. Uh, the most outstanding is, is uh, Robert uh, Dickinson, who sparred with uh, Sanger about her clinics, uh, but the two finally came to respect each other. But Sanger, you see, is, is if you think about this, uh, here's this woman and she started this organization and she has support from some of the wealthy people in New York and she set up a nationwide, nationwide organization, but she has uh, no powerful supporters to help her, not the medical profession, not at this stage, nearly all religions, although that will change in 1930. And um, so some of the decisions and tactics that Sanger used, I think, are perfectly explicable uh, given the context in which she worked. You mentioned um, U.S. versus one package. Can you talk about that a oh, bit more? Yeah. yeah. Well, Sanger, Sanger orchestrated, I mean, this is why I uh, admire this woman so much. Um, 
she orchestrated that that case. Uh, she had been to Japan by this time, and there was this new pessary, a diaphragm, and she always thought that diaphragms were uh, the most effective birth control for, for women before, of course, the pill. And so she had encouraged this Japanese gynecologist to mail her uh, some pessaries. They were confiscated uh, by the United States Postal Service, and her lawyer, a very famous civil rights lawyer, uh, civil liberties union uh, uh, lawyer, uh, Morris Ernst, told her that she would have no standing because she was not a doctor, and the best way to do this is to have uh, the diaphragms, the pessaries, mailed to uh, Hannah Stone, Dr. Hannah Stone, who at the time was in charge of the, of the uh, Margaret Sanger Research Bureau. So the pessaries arrive, and they're confiscated. And so uh, Stone goes, into, goes to court and sues, and the, the case gets to uh, the, eventually the New York um, Supreme Court. I'm sorry. It gets to the district court, and then uh, the United States appeals uh, court, and the court uh, rules uh, in favor of, of the birth control advocates on the basis that things have changed, uh, what a previous court might have ruled by progress and understanding uh, about sex. Uh, this was a case that was not dependent on on what we would naturally think today would be the basis of, of uh, the 14th Amendment so uh, or the First Amendment. So um, Sanger wins the, this case, uh, wins uh, the appeal, and uh, this is the real landmark for the overturning of the Comstock Law. Now doctors can uh, send information to each other about birth control. Now foreign researchers can mail to the United States these changes in the diaphragm. But what's interesting about the particular uh, kinds of instruments or uh, the research is that all these people up until maybe 1935, are working within the same paradigm. They're trying to improve pessaries and diaphragms. They're trying to improve spermicides. And so, to some extent, the technology of birth control does not change even when the legal prohibitions are overturned. Speaking of changes in technology, the creation of the pill... Can you discuss Sanger's role in that? Uh, again, this to me was uh, just an outstanding example of the primacy of this woman. Um, I'm not a great believer in the great men and women theories that they um, actually shape things, but in Sanger's case, it does seem to me that she shaped uh, the birth control movement almost by herself. So by the 1930s, she's smart enough to have figured out because, again, she's organizing these conferences and sending to 
all kinds of scientists invitations to give papers, but she's aware of the research that is going on in endocrinology. And she's aware of the possibilities of hormonal research. As, as early as 1931, she's talking about it. So uh, in the period after World War II, there's more and more research that's being done, and Sanger is looking at a series of different kinds of approaches. And as I say, she hears about them in her conferences. Uh, these are worldwide conferences with the great names of endocrinology uh, included. And uh, she makes the decision that it's going to be an anovulant, that uh, the she has sufficiently understood this complex a process where the uh, pituitary uh, gland sends follicle-stimulating hormones, and um, eventually the corpus luteum uh, opens up and an egg comes out, and after that, uh, the corpus luteum sends out progesterone, and it's progesterone that makes the lighting of the uterus hospitable uh, for the egg, but also, and this is the key point for that Sanger saw, uh, prevents any more eggs uh, from maturing. So that seemed to be, for Sanger, uh, the answer. And she sees this, uh, even though for years she's been humiliated as a woman that didn't know anything about science. She goes to her very, very, very wealthy friend, Catherine McCormick of the McCormick Harvester Fortune. And these two women together drive in this uh, wonderful episode in 1953. They drive to Worcester, Massachusetts, to the lab of Dr. Gregory Pincus. And uh, Pincus has been working on mammalian eggs for many, many years, probably knows more about the process of uh, mammalian eggs and human eggs than anyone else in the world. He is, however, an outlier. He hasn't gotten tenure at Harvard, and he's had to set up this uh, lab in Worcester, Mass., and he's dependent on pharmaceutical grants and uh, individual grants. He's just lost a grant uh, from Searle Company, uh, the Swiss Pharmaceutical Company, and uh, he entertains these two women um, in his lab, and at the end of their tour of the lab, Catherine McCormick says, um, I'm going to support your work, here's $10,000, and I'll, I want to talk to my money man, and you will get some more, and uh, over her lifetime, I think she gave she gave millions of dollars and left more money to him in his will. Now, surely uh, Sanger's commitment to Pincus's work, her ability to persuade McCormick uh, that this was the way to go, stands as another of her triumphs in terms of her commitment to birth control. Uh, these two women 
pressed it at Pincus uh, to hurry up. And Pincus, of course, is a, a good laboratory man, needed uh, to be able to test the drug. Um, there's been some criticism of the process of testing. Uh, in terms of the FDA and what was required uh, for informed consent and all those things that we think of today, uh, the process was probably as far advanced as any other uh, in at the time. And so during the 1950s, there are tests that are done in Puerto Rico, in Haiti, in uh, Dr. John Brock's lab in Massachusetts, and eventually, um, again, Sanger and McCormick both pressing for a pill that can be ingested with, and the problem here is to get enough progesterone in the pill, uh, and this was finally accomplished, and uh, the FDA at first approved it just for infertility, uh, which was sort of a joke, and finally in 1962, in the form of Innovid, uh, the pill became commercially available, and here it seems to me is the end of uh, Sanger's quest for uh, a contraceptive that's legal. She's been able to overturn uh, the Comstock uh, law that's easy and that you can take it uh, by mouth. Uh, that's relatively uh, cheap and that is very, very effective. And in all those capacities, she has been the primary formulator and shaper of what happens. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today about Margaret Sanger, A Life of Passion. Any idea who you'll be writing about next? Oh, Linda, uh, not, not yet. <laughs> Under advisement. <laughs> but it's nice to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. I've been speaking today with feminist historian Jean H. Baker about her latest book entitled Margaret Sanger, A Life of Passion, which is now out in hardback. I'm Olay Neaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening. <laughs>